want to start off by kind of laughing about the, the unpredictability of life because as unpredictable as life can be, we as human beings are immensely predictable. You've all heard the expression, you couldn't just leave well enough alone, and when it comes to humanity, don't we seem to struggle with that? Those times that we couldn't just leave well enough alone, we had to go on and botch it because that's our nature. I think one of the saddest examples that I ever came across of, of us and allowing our human nature and pride and sin to botch a really good thing was this. You've seen those before, the little free library. These cute little libraries that are all around the U.S. and all around the world. These little wooden boxes that are seen on street corners with books in them intended for people to borrow, for people to leave. Todd Bull, the founder of the idea, he created this quirky little library box under the belief that, as he said, I really believe in a little free library on every block and a book in every hand. I believe people can fix their neighborhoods, fix their communities, develop systems of sharing, learn from each other, and see that they have a better place on this planet to live. You know, this, this really neat little nonprofit organization started in Hudson, Wisconsin, and it's done some pretty wonderful things. There's over 90,000 little free libraries in over 90 countries. They exchange millions of books annually, and they estimate of the 90,000 little free libraries that are known of, that's only 40%, because people aren't asked to register. You can if you want. Their website tells you where you can find these little libraries. On the website for free little libraries, they tell you how to make your own box if you want to put one up. You can order a pre-made box from them if you're not particularly handy. Some of the positive effects that have come from this, 73% of people say they've met more neighbors because of it. 92% of people say their neighborhood feels like a friendlier place because of one of these boxes. Like such a heartwarming little story until people do what people do and pride and sin gets in the way and it's now locked into lawsuits. This cute little organization got peopled. So what happened is founder Ted Bull passed away in October a few years back, and by the end of November, his brother who had taken over was ousted. In January of the following year, in order to create a, a memory of his brother, he started making his own little wooden boxes that he would sell to people as a way of honoring his brothers, though free little, little Free Library doesn't see it that way, and they filed a trademark lawsuit against him. This has been locked up in a legal battle for a while now. My reason for bringing this up is just like Christmas day is behind us, that season of good cheer is suddenly gone. Ask anybody who works in retail. I went into the store the other day and my son was behind the customer service line like this. But that's not how we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to pride and sin all the good things that we're supposed to live out all of our days. And so, friends, I invite you to please rise for the reading of our sermon text today. Our sermon text comes from Matthew chapter 25, reading verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be enough for us, not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This ends our sermon text. You may be seated. So our sermon today is going to conclude this series that we've been doing for the last few months called Follow Me and examining what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And we'll conclude this series with what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus who lives with urgency. How we as followers of Christ should live our lives living out this urgency that is specific to us. And so let's first off dive into this text that we just heard. And it's a text that culturally might be hard for a lot of us to understand. So I'll put it in maybe a more modern context. This will be more topical and relatable since we're just wrapping up with the Christmas shopping season. We might all remember this, lines from Black Friday, right? And those crazy deals that go on. So imagine this. Imagine you and your friends go stand in line, we'll say at Target, and you're waiting for them to open up at 6 a.m. on Black Friday so you can buy a 100-inch TV for 20 bucks. We've all got to have a big 100-inch TV, right? And so you're in line the night before because you've got to have this monster in your living room, and you get there like 10 p.m., and you're waiting in line to get this, and about 2 a.m. hits, and your friends say to you, yo, I'm tired, I'm going I'm to go home, catch a quick nap, text me when they open, I'll come join you then in line. Okay, so far so good, only Target decides to open early that morning. You text your friends to hurry up to get down there, but the reality is there's only 25 TVs being sold at this price, and you're not about to miss out on getting one of them. You were in line the whole time. So you go and you get your TV, and your friends come rushing down, but by the time they get there, all those TVs are gone. They plead with the customer service person, well, we were in line earlier, and all the hear is, sorry, we don't allow for rain checks on Black Friday specials. You should have stayed waiting in line. Maybe that's not quite as, as beautiful as Jesus' description was, but maybe that makes a bit more sense. But the analogy of all of these was this. You either see the whole thing out or you risk losing out. And I know that's kind of a simplistic explanation of what was being said here, but that's exactly what was being said here. Christianity is not something that we can just do out of convenience. It is either an all-in thing, or you risk hearing what I believe are the scariest words in the whole Bible where Jesus says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And by the way, that's not the only time that Jesus said those words. Let me share with you from Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' greatest sermon throughout Scripture. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, I can't help but think those, those are the scariest words in the whole Bible. 
Because what you hear people pleading with Jesus are people saying, wait, Jesus, I know you. I did all these great things in your name. I cast out demons and I did prophecies and and great miracles and Jesus just says, depart from me, I didn't know you. Isn't that kind of scary to think that you know Jesus and he says, I didn't know you? And so the question you have to ask for yourself is this. Are you using Jesus' name to benefit yourself or are you using Jesus' name for the sake of the kingdom of God? Because the two are very different from one another. It's interesting, this doesn't always sit well with everybody and I apologize, but I struggle with this. This was a, sadly a fad that was out a few years back. When there was all of these pastors going to their church trying to raise money for a private jet, one pastor going for his second private jet, he needed $40 million from the congregation. I struggle to believe that even though you're doing that in Jesus' name, that you're actually doing it for the kingdom of God and not for your own kingdom. Now that's between that pastor and the Lord, but what it makes me wonder is, isn't it interesting that you need a second private jet, but yet the king of kings rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey? And I know that one's an extreme example, so what about for the rest of us? You know, the common folk that can only afford economy class. Let me ask you about cultural Christianity to examine if that's in your own lives. Let me ask you these questions, friends. Are you a Christian because you go to church and all your friends are here? Are you a Christian because Christianity stands for God, guns, and America? Are you a Christian because your, your parents were and that's just part of your family identity? Are you a Christian because by being here you can have influence over the church? Are you a Christian because you know the Bible better than everybody else? There's nothing wrong with any of those traits until you realize that none of those traits point back to Jesus. Think about the example for having friends at church. That is actually an essential part about church. But let me ask you this. As friends in Jesus, is Jesus the center of your friendship? Because if not, this is a country club and not a Christian community. As for Christian nationalism, listen, it's great to be in a country where we have the freedom to worship as we please. But here's the real question. Do you fight as hard for God's kingdom as you do for your own rights? Basically asking, if you weren't free to worship Jesus, would you still worship Jesus? Or as for your Christian identity, just because your parents were raised that way doesn't make you a Christian. Christian identity is not about wearing a cross necklace or having a Jesus fish on your car or a pro-life bumper sticker. A Christian identity is defined by what Jesus says in John 13, 35 when he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As for Christianity through influence, I think it's amazing how many people come to a church for the sake of telling everybody how the church should be run. This is anecdotal evidence, but in eight years of being a pastor and 11 years of working in ministry, I've learned this. Rarely is it those who complain who are actually willing to do anything about it. As for being a Christian, because you just know the Bible better than everybody else, and you're in Bible studies more than everybody else, and so it's your place to let everybody else know where they're wrong about Scripture. I ask you this, you keep filling your mind with Scripture, but it never seems to be reaching your hearts. 
And I'm sorry if any of this has seemed crabby up to this point or if I'm pointing any fingers, I can assure you I had no one person in mind when I wrote this. I had most of you in mind. No, I'm not up here trying to tell anybody that you're a bad Christian. What I'm trying to do here is share with you as a pastor. Somebody that the Bible says is responsible of being a watcher over your souls. That's our call in Hebrews 13, 17. Pastor Justin, Pastor Kirk, myself, we have taken this calling seriously to be a watcher over your souls. And so because of that, I can't help but read a comment from Jesus saying, I never knew you, and not feel concerned that some of you could potentially hear those words. Like the examples I wrote above were, again, not directed at anybody, but those are the most common types of Christianity that I've encountered in my life. And it's the self-delusional type of Christianity that doesn't really know Jesus, though it claims to. Because you're not living with any sense of urgency over the claim of, I am a follower of Jesus. You see, friends, the urgency that comes from being a follower of Jesus is understanding the transformation that is supposed to take place in us. A follower of Jesus is supposed to be the old you. And it's funny, I had written down to put aside the old you, and I realized those are just just too light of a statement. Scripture is a lot more harsh about the old you. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 5, 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. He's like, you can't even combine the two. You can't be old and new together. Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Romans 6, 11, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, you notice what's saying in all of these Once you become a follower of Jesus, you can't be that old you anymore. Even if you've been born and raised in the church, there came that point when you've had to kind of own your faith. And at that point, that old you cannot exist anymore. If you go all the way back to the parable that we're about with the ten virgins. You see, if you're one of those people that want to go catch that quick nap, before the bridegroom returns, or before the doors open up for Target. You're living a hope that Jesus won't return when you're not ready. I'm not sure if that's the wisest path to follow as a follower of Christ. That's why the follower of Christ has so much urgency. We don't know when Christ is returning. Jesus said that here at the end of this, watch therefore, you know now whether the day nor the hour. So we don't know the day or the hour. I think if we knew the day or hour, we'd Santa Claus our Christian faith. Oh, Jesus comes in three days from now. I better start being a good little boy or a good little girl so God will be happy and let me into heaven. Because that's what we do. But we don't know the day or the hour. And so the follower of Jesus lives with that type of urgency that the five wise virgins lived with. And I believe that they stayed waiting for two reasons. The first is what we've been saying all along because they didn't know when Jesus was going to return. So we're going to stay waiting then. And I think secondly, it's worth the wait. I think we forget that sometimes. It's worth it. I look forward to it. I don't want to be a follower of Jesus as a form of fire insurance. I mean, yeah, we should be terrified of eternal condemnation, terrified of the thought of hell, but my point is you should be awaiting for Jesus' arrival because you don't want to miss out on Jesus' arrival. 
The Christian that worships God out of a fear of hell is missing the abundant life that Jesus promised. The Christian that worships God because of God's goodness and recognition that we have received a grace and a mercy that we don't deserve, that's one that's filled with gratitude. And that gratitude then becomes reflected in how we live as a new creature. That's why I started that sermon illustration with that little free library. We've got to quit peopling our Christian faith. We've got to get pride and sin out of our Christian faith. We've got to quit taking the good that is Scripture and trying to mold it to fit our own agendas. You know, the Christmas spirit should never end. It should define us year-round. The concept of a New Year's resolution should actually never end, but define us a year round because the Christian should always be resolving to be more like Christ. This is what Scripture calls sanctification. Growing to be more like Christ in our faith. And it means living with a sense of urgency to understand the importance of this transformation. One where you are not only longing for Christ's return, but you're actually living as if you're longing for Christ's return. Because if you're not, you're living the other way. I hope Jesus doesn't come back when my hand is in the proverbial cookie jar. Stop and think about that for a moment. We've all got that sin that you're like, I probably shouldn't do this. Next time you're about ready to do it, think, what if the heavens opened up at that moment when I'm doing it and Jesus came down? That sin's going to become a whole lot less necessary all of a sudden. But you see the new you the one that is longing for Jesus' return, you live in a way that expects Jesus' return. One without fear of getting caught. I hope Jesus doesn't come back at this moment. Instead, you would want him to come and see you living the way you're supposed to. And so what does that look like? Scripture's very clear, friends, on what the new you is supposed to look like. And it's some of my favorite sections in Scripture. Because when you read these sections, there's a repeated theme throughout all of them. And it's a theme that says our lives are about God's kingdom, not about our own kingdom. Because Jesus' whole comment of, I did not know you, that's directed at those who weren't living for Jesus' kingdom. And so I'm going to kind of summarize all of these. If you grabbed a bulletin, you'll see all of these listed in the bulletin, and I'll have a challenge for you as we wrap up this message. So you don't have to open these up or write these down right now, but I'm going to kind of summarize these different sections that I listed in there. And the first one will be Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And this section is titled, Marks of the True Christian. I'm guessing the mark of a true Christian is not somebody that's going to hear Jesus say, I didn't know you on that final day. And I'm going to pull up a lot of sections of Scripture like this. Because this is not rare. This is the norm all throughout the New Testament. It's actually the norm all throughout the Old Testament even. It is instructions for how to live the Christian life. This is not a section just on, well, it just says be nice and give to charity. It's a section that talks about your character. Because the, net, the be nice and give to charity, that's the baseline. We should all be doing that anyway. But before I dive into these, I have to allude to one thing. I always find it fascinating anytime I teach on texts like this, texts about Christian character, somebody will always come up to me and say, well, pastor, you know, you can't earn your way into heaven. It's not about works. I always wonder why there's that kind of resistance to hearing texts like this. They call our character to be godly character. 
Is it because the person just wants to simply say, I know I'm saved through my faith in the power of the blood of Jesus? And then what? To then just go back to living your own way? What about all of these scriptures that call us to be a new creation? This is the urgency the believer has to live as if we are a new creation, not just what's the bare minimum to get into heaven. So if you've got that little voice chirping in your ear, well, this sounds like works to me. Listen, nothing I'm about to say is going to save you. The reality is this. Our sins have separated us from God. Nothing we can do can ever earn our place back with God. We have separated ourselves from that which is why God sent his son down to this earth. Jesus lived that perfect life so that he could be that perfect sacrifice for us, that his blood would cleanse us of our sins, his resurrection would be our resurrection and give us that hope then of being with him in eternal life. That part is all true, and faith in Jesus is why we're saved. But again, this text is not saying do these things to be saved. All of these texts are saying this indicates that you are saved because you are the new creation you are called to be. This is what the believer looks like who has put to death the old self. So, with that disclaimer out of the way, the section from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, this was the opening line and everything was built off of it. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I don't even need to cover the rest of the section because the reality is, is if everything you do is done out of true love and a resistance against all things evil, you're following what God would want from you. It's all about putting aside your own pride, your ambitions, and conduct yourself in a way as if you know Jesus could return at any moment. The section is all about how the Christian should live and love those that are around them. The next section that I highlighted comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. And by the way, these sections I'm going to bring up aren't in any particular order. One's not more special than the other. These are just all sections that are instructing the Christian and how we are to live as followers of Christ. As a matter of fact, the whole section in Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is titled, Put on the New Self. And it starts with this, that we are to put to death ourselves. We are to put to death what it calls the earthly things. The things that it says that you once walked in. If you used to be that way, Jesus has cleansed you from that way, so stop walking in that same way. And so that's the crux then of this section I loved in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptors in there, by the way. You are one of God's chosen ones. Do you see yourself that way? Because if you do, live out the reflection of God that is in you as one who has been chosen by God. We can go on to Philippians 2, verses 1 to 18. The two different titles in that section are called Christ's Example of Humility, and then it goes on to say lights in the world. And so the first part is talking about what it looks like for us to follow in the example of humility that Jesus set before us. And then once we learn to follow Christ's example of humility, we can become a light into this world's. 
Philippians 2.12, the second part of that reads, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do you see the importance of taking ownership of our salvation, not being casual and saying, Jesus died for my sins, that's enough, but it's knowing it and now living it as if you actually believe that. And part of that comes from that example of humility that Christ showed, that Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of the universe, would come down to this earth and serve us. Who are we then to ever elevate ourselves above somebody else? And once that follows, the love from that, that's how you are, the light into the worlds. Or the next section comes from Galatians chapter 5. If you're an avid Bible reader, you know of this section then. And in this section is found what's called the fruit of the spirits. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. I'll talk about what this looks like. And you'll notice in here. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's Galatians 5, 24. Notice again, we're putting aside our flesh and our passions and our desires. We are crucifying them. And this section in Galatians describes the difference between the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. The works of the Spirit, it describes as the fruit of the Spirit, which are this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How well do you fit those traits? And remember, by the way, those are not suggestions. And remember, by the way, that is not fruits of the Spirit. It is not a plural fruits. It is a singular fruit, meaning one fruit embodies all of these traits. These traits are represented by the follower of Jesus Christ, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and living the traits of the Spirit in them. And lastly, I'll close with this one then. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 talks about how we live for Christ. As a matter of fact, actually all of chapter 1 of 1 Peter talks about how we are to crucify ourselves and then it gets into chapter 2 and verse 9 and we see this. After you've put to death yourself, you are described as this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who you are to God when you are a follower of Christ. I love that description of who we are and how God sees us. And looking at the depth of those titles then, how can we live any other way but a way that reflects that? Because when we reflect understanding the depth of those, this is what we are reflecting into the world because verse 12, then Peter goes on to say, this is why God calls us to have this type of character. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. No matter what the world does and acts like, you are above that because you know who you are as a follower of Christ, and you live as set apart. So I want to close out today with a challenge for us for how we can live out the urgency that Jesus was describing in Matthew 25. The whole chapter of, of Matthew 25, multiple teachings of Jesus about his return again and how we need to be prepared for that. And so as I said, you have these in your bulletin. And I actually put two more up there because it's not hard to find texts that talk about Christian ethics. 
So I have a challenge for you to read these on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, the reason I put seven up there is what if for the next month you read just one of these a day and just kept rotating through it? So on Monday, read Romans 12, 9 through 21, Tuesday, Colossians 3, 17. Listen, there's nothing magical about this. This isn't biblical. This isn't some special formula. All this is, is posted up here for you to understand the depth of what Scripture calls for how the Christian lives out urgency by showing the Christian ethics indicating that we are the new creation. And it's interesting because with these, there's three different authors and these are all different books. It's not like all of these ethics came from one guy writing a crabby letter to one bad city that wasn't listening. This is from Jesus, this is from Peter, and this is from Paul. All teaching the same things, trying to teach the believer to live with urgency, to take seriously the calling of God's call in our lives. And I put this challenge up here because I came across a great quote the other day. I thought this was magnificent. This is a quote from Aristotle. He said this, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act, but a habit. And so if you repeatedly read these texts and understand them, they stop becoming something you act out and they just become a habit of who you are. If you remember from our scripture reading, when Jesus separated the sheep and the goats, it's the difference between an act and a habit. Remember the goats are like, well, when did we see this and not do any of it? They would have acted on it had they known. But what's the habit? The sheep. Well, Lord, when did we see this? We didn't even know, we just did it because it's out of a habit. It becomes who you are. Spend time in these verses, friends. Let it become who you are. Make this who you habitually are and you will be ready for Christ's return. Please join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, it is such a challenge for us to truly be able to live out your kingdom ethics. Father, we have sin, we have pride, we have those dark areas of our heart that we do not want to address. Let your Holy Spirit illuminate those places in us. Soften our hearts to want to get rid of all of the things that reflect the old self. And let us, God, find with joy and delight a desire to transform the old self and live as you have called us to live, that it would be for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.